Hi everybody, I'm Lacey. I'm Bailey. And I'm Drew. And we're sarcastic, so let's get sinister. I like that we both dance to um, the music that is definitely... Not playing right now? Right. But we imagine that it is. It's not even, like, the beat to, like, our theme song, either. No. (laughs) No, we're much more upbeat. I'm Mm -hmm. imagining Pumped Up Kicks, that song. Oh. I have no music in my head for it. I'm just bobbing. You're just going. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. Even though this isn't the first episode of the New Year. Isn't it? No, because last... Right? Because New Year started on Monday. When did... Oh, our last episode came out on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Mm. So, Happy New Year! So, this is the first one of the official 2024. That's right. Yes. And Lacey is back. I'm back! We missed you. I missed you guys. Where were you? uh, I listened to the episode last week, and Sarah did a good job, but I did miss being there. Yeah. I enjoyed, we watched the Patreon video, and I enjoyed seeing some of my pictures up there. My bison and my moose. Yeah. Yeah. Bailey, Bailey doesn't know. I edited while we were talking about Lacey being Away. across the country. I threw in some of the pictures she shared with me and us. Both of you. Everybody. Every, you all three just of said us. <laughs> I know. I don't know. We're almost at our uh, one-year anniversary. Yeah, and we're almost at two hundred followers on Spotify. Hey, hey guys! Um, So, Lacey, how was your trip? Oh, it was fantastic. Did you get sick while there, or when you get back? No, not till I came back. I uh, I had a nice, healthy week. We hit um, Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, and Glacier National Park, and then I came back, and I'm going to blame it on my students and say they immediately Mm. fucked up my immune system. Well, we're glad that you didn't die in one of the national parks. That would have been... Yeah, you too. I could have been... A real downer. But we could have covered her case in detail. Yeah. Yeah, There'd be very little research needed. Lacey would have more. What'd you Mm say? I said we'd have really good sources, too. Yeah. I have her mom's phone number, so... So do I. Yeah, so, like, that's a good source right there. And then all we have to do for Levi is get him drunk, and he'll sh- spill all the beans. <laughs> He'd be more than happy. I was getting ready to get on, and he was like, I kind of want to stay and be part of this, but I don't think I should, because I'm pretty drunk. And I was like, yeah, I don't think you should. Also, <laughs> he would have been him. thrilled. He was in such a good mood. Who invited him? <laughs> he just, just he wanted to be our first special guest of the year. <laughs> mm. Maybe next time. So, um, Lacey, you, what did we talk about last year? The last episode? Last episode, we talked about the Christmas ones. Oh, yeah. We talked about uh, the Carnation Christmas. The Andersons. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, That was all a little crazy. You didn't listen. 
She I didn't, didn't remember anything. She didn't I listen. Did. First one mm. were these two who were pissed off that they had to start paying rent, so they killed their family. And then the other one was an older case, and that guy who got hit in the head with the axe, he uh, went on a rampage, slaughtered everybody, even though the autopsy showed there was no brain damage. I listened. All right, all right she did listen. I was too dead. <laughs> all right, yeah. so uh, that's because it kept we, auto playing. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, instead of focusing on a specific case, I'm going to be talking to you guys about coerced confessions. Ooh. Everybody ready? So is this like, are you going to, like, you have examples that you're going to tell us about? Yeah, I'm going to. Well, what happened was when I was researching a case months ago, um, I ended up not having enough to do a whole episode on it. But the person who went to jail claimed that their confession had been coerced. And I ended up on a little bit of a side trip like we tend to do when we're researching on Mm -hmm. kind of the science behind why people confess to things they didn't do. And I ended up down a rabbit hole and I decided this would make an interesting episode. Yeah, especially because from what I remember, you you often, um, when put on the spot, admit to things you didn't do. Yeah, and my research here has me convinced I would absolutely go to jail for something I didn't do. (laughs) Just don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. I don't think that'll help. Side me. note, um, did you guys see that the Epstein uh, files are getting released and some people have been named? No. Yeah. But I don't know how the stuff that I've heard. I'm not sure how true it is because mm-hmm. everything I've heard is from TikTok. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I, side note, my information you... is from Instagram, so so more reliable, probably a little bit. Also, different side note: Christina Kettlewell, the Eight Day Bride. Yeah. In the episode that I'm currently listening to of um, another podcast where they're talking about her, they found court records where Ron and Jack, the husband and the friend that went on the honeymoon, did we find out that they had a relationship? It's, um, I think it's one of the theories. Heavily. Yeah. They've, they admitted it, apparently, during court. I think they I mentioned that. They found in like okay, hold on a second. You guys talk okay. amongst yourselves. I um, I don't remember all the details that you gave us of that case, but I remember being absolutely convinced that they had been in a relationship. It was um, it's it was one of the theories that that's like they killed her for the um life insurance because that's I remember they took it out and they put it in um the friend's name um but i feel like i saw that it was released in um court documents can you read that yeah i'm so shocked to hear that start fresh with everybody let me find my notes hello who's this my youngest woke up from her nap and she's very upset 
So I'm not um, not pointing fingers, but I do think that sharing Pringles with her may have made me sick. But I'm also like okay with it. Because we have that memory forever. That's right. It was a good Christmas. I had fun. Right until the day after when shit hit the fan with my family. Right. So, Lacey, we're we're also going to talk about the science. Yeah. Um, you want me to just dive in, and then you guys can. Yeah, let's dive on in. All right. She's she's probably going to hang out. That's fair. Um, I think yeah. that this is probably a good episode for her to listen to because it's not a gruesome murder episode. Oh, good. Also, she's oh. one. So. Yeah. True. In my notes that I did share, it was revealed that during an intense questioning that I think Ronald, no, no, Jack admitted to an affair with Ronald. Yeah, so what, sorry, but like what the girls on the podcast were saying is that he he admitted it during questioning and then during court, he kind of retracted. But then Ronald also did the exact same thing. Like he admitted it during questioning and then retracted it during court. My notes say later reclaimed his statement, maintaining that the police coerced him to saying it. What a nice um, segue. But like three years, because I have it the aftermath, because I think Ronald kind of like disappeared, but like Jack remarried. Oh, what were you saying? And, and had like, like a family. A whole new family. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Which I mean, like, whatever, not judging his relationship, but yeah, we did go over that. I just pulled up my notes from that episode. Okay. So, maybe. Oh, I wasn't accusing you. I was just like. Maybe they were maybe. coerced. It wasn't. I was just thinking that it wasn't. If if that was the case, it, it wouldn't be quite so. Because the, the main thing I remember from that case is the fact that Ron went on the honeymoon with them. Well, it was also because I was telling Lacey as you were grabbing your baby um, that there were, I think Ronald, who was the friend, was the um, benefactor on a life insurance policy that had been taken out on her. Right. And then Jack, oh, wait, no, no. Ronald had a 5000 policy on the cottage that burned making Jack the benefactor and Jack took out two separate policies on himself and Christina before the marriage that had the double indemnity clause that um, he'd get twice the amount if the death was an accident. Well, yeah. We've all heard. Was it Ron or Jack who said that the the confession was coerced? I have it done as Jack. Jack, okay. So, segue. confessions, let's get into it. Yeah. We've all heard of a case where a suspect confesses to a crime and then recants. And if you haven't, you have now. Um, and sometimes you <laughs> are heinous crimes, like murder. Usually we brush that off, don't really believe them when they recant, because we figure, why would anybody confess to a crime they hadn't committed, let alone something like murder? And we tell ourselves that no reasonable person would do that, we would obviously never do this. The person who recanted is just panicking. They're grasping at straws and trying to get away with the crime. 
The disturbing truth is that coerced confessions happen more often than you think. As of December 1st, 2013, 311 people had been exonerated specifically due to post-conviction DNA testing. Over a quarter of those people had confessed to the crime they were accused of. This begs the question, why would anybody confess to a crime that they did not commit? So first, um, we need to understand that I'm going to be focusing specifically on false confessions. But coerced confessions actually can be false, unreliable, or even true. Right? You can be coerced into confessing something that you did do. True? Yes, Will true. Will you be talking about the West Memphis 3 at all? I'm not. I've just got three examples oh. for you guys because I ended up being a little bit longer than I planned on. Uh, but there are so many examples. Yeah, that would be that would be a good next episode. Okay. It's it's um, not what we have planned, but it would be because it it was a co- coerced. Can we just take a moment and look at um the baby's face? She is not in the mood. <laughs> She's really not. She is very focused though. That yeah, I think it's similar to the one that the other one made in a lot of my wedding pictures. <laughs> yeah. Just mean mugging. <laughs> um, so That's my kids. Coerced oh. confessions can be false confessions, which is what I'm going to focus, focus on. They can be focus. unreliable confessions, or they can be true. Interestingly, even if a confession is true, if it was coerced, it's not supposed to be admissible in court. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause prohibits the use of coerced confessions in state criminal proceedings. So if you are coerced into admitting to something or confessing to something that you actually did do, they're still not supposed to be allowed to use your confession if it's a coerced confession. I need to slow down and get it all slurry. But I'm focusing on false confessions, okay? So false confessions can also be narrowed down to three categories. You have compliant false confessions. These usually happen when the suspect just wants the interrogation to end. They might believe they'll be allowed to go home or receive a lesser punishment if they confess. Persuaded false confessions are when the suspect doubts their own memory. They start to believe it's likely they committed the crime, even if they don't remember doing so. If somebody is drunk when the crime happens or um, really tired or they're high or something, they can be more easily persuaded into thinking, I must have done this. I just don't remember doing it. Then there are voluntary false confessions, which are exactly what they sound like. Your suspect might be trying to protect somebody else, or they might have some type of mental disorder that makes them want to receive fame for committing the crime. So a lot of times when there's like a serial killer or something, we'll hear about people confessing to the crime for the attention. This would be a voluntary false confession. There are various interrogation techniques that can be used to coerce confessions from suspects. These include physical coercion, threats of violence, lying about evidence, making promises or threats about the consequences of confessing or not confessing, um, appealing to sympathy, feigning friendship, using leading questions. So, for example, instead of saying, did you do this, saying something like, did you plan this or was it spur of the moment? Did you come up with this on your own, or was this your buddy's idea? Um, interrogating for long periods with no breaks. Interrogating suspects who are sleep-deprived or who are under the influence. Something I think that's important to keep in mind that I had to keep reminding myself when I was researching is that when people are interrogating suspects, they usually 
are not trying to get somebody to confess to something they didn't do. They think they've got the right person. They're trying to get closure. They're trying to get a confession to something that actually happened. People who come up with interrogation techniques feel like they're just trying to get the truth from people. And as I was going through this, I was getting so frustrated with some of this research. And I had to keep reminding myself that they're not like out to trick everybody who didn't commit a crime into confessing to it. Um, So why do people fall for techniques when they did not commit a crime? Um, Stress, mental exhaustion, promises and lenient sentences, not understanding your rights. So a lot of people will waive their right to an attorney because they think that it makes them look less guilty, even though you should never waive your right to an attorney. Um, And sometimes they'll interpret certain statements differently. So, for example, the interrogator might say something like, if you confess, this will end. This will be all over. And they might interpret that as, if I confess, I'm going to be allowed to go home. This will be done. And then there are certain groups of people who are particularly vulnerable to falsely confessing. Children, people with intellectual disabilities, people with language barriers are vulnerable. Um, People of color often will feel like they're automatically going to be found guilty if they go to trial. So they might confess to something if they're told their sentence will be more lenient than if they go to trial and are found guilty. Um, One study of false confessions showed that people who falsely confessed were interrogated on average 16 hours before finally giving in and confessing. That's a little bit, that feels a little crazy to me. That's like starting at 6 o'clock in the morning and then ending at like 10 o'clock at night. That's a long day of questioning. There have been instances of people being convicted despite DNA evidence showing that they could not have committed the crime because of their confessions. Juries are more likely to believe a confession than anything else. So police are trained to interrogate suspects. They usually get specific interrogation training. Um, A very popular interrogation technique is called the Reed technique, R-E-I-D. This was developed talk about good cop, bad cop. I'm going to talk about the Reed technique. What are your thoughts? Well, you don't have any thoughts. You don't know about it yet. So (laughs) the Reed technique was developed by a man named John E. Reed. He was a former Chicago police officer who became a polygraph expert and police consultant. In 1955 in Lincoln, Nebraska, he helped elicit a confession from a man named Daryl Parker for the murder of Parker's wife. Parker was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. This case made Reed's technique popular. He then co-authored a book describing his techniques. It's called the Reed Technique Manual, and it is on its fifth edition. And then he built a company called John E. Reed and Associates, which trains interrogators. This company is still in existence. Um, Their clients include police forces, private security companies, military, FBI, CIA, Secret Service. According to them, the people that they train get suspects to confess 80% of the time. According to the New Yorker, this company has trained more interrogators than any other company in the world. So let me tell you about the read technique. So if you were ever being interrogated and you didn't do it, you know what to look out for. So the it's a three-phase process, okay? The guidelines state that phase three should only take place if phases one and two indicate that the subject is probably involved in the crime. So if you get through phase two and you don't feel that they were part of the crime, you're not supposed to move on to phase three. 
phase one is just a fact analysis. This doesn't really involve the subject. This is you gathering your evidence. Phase two is a behavior analysis interview. This is non-accusatory. It's designed to gather information. This has its roots in polygraph testing. The investigator will ask a series of non-threatening questions to get a sense of the suspect's baseline behavior, and then they throw in some more loaded questions and statements. Things like, what kind of punishment do you think the person who committed this crime deserves? Um, We're analyzing evidence from the scene. Is there any reason your DNA would be at the scene? If you decide during phase two that the suspect is lying, you leave the room for five minutes, you come back with an official-looking folder and announce that you have evidence the suspect is guilty, and you start phase three. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about episodes of Law and & Order, and I was like, yeah, this is what they do. Jer- what I thought of? Huh? Um, the, I think it's an episode of The I don't know what about you Bailey, said? but you just cut out on my end for a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it was weird on my end, too. Um, it, an episode of The Office when Joe is trying to find out who, like, uh, leaked so, the thing about the printers. Yeah, and the she, asks, she asks everybody what they think the punishment should be for whoever did it. And Ooh. then that's how she... Part of phase two. Yeah. And it was, as I was reading this, I was like, all cop movies, detective movies, and shows and stuff you watch, you see these techniques being used, and it's because it's such a popular technique. It does tend to get confessions. The in- issue is, are they all real confessions? But we're not there yet. So, when you come back and you say, you got your folder, and you're like, we know you did it, buddy. Now you go into phase three. This is the actual interrogation. Okay, now you switch from... um from just gathering evidence to accusatory. There are nine stages to this phase. First, you have a positive confrontation. You tell the suspect, we've got evidence, we know that you did it, and you offer them an opportunity to explain this. Okay. Step two, you try to shift the blame away from them to somebody else or some other kind of circumstances that would have prompted them to commit the crime. You kind of give them a way out or a way to justify yeah. doing it, right? I know that you didn't mean to hurt her. It was self-defense. You couldn't help it. You didn't have any control over the situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, third, you try to minimize the frequency of suspect denial. So just kind of roll over them saying, no, I didn't do it. Four, at this point, the accused will often give a reason why they didn't commit the crime or why they couldn't have done it. Try to use this to move towards the acknowledgement of what they did do. So I couldn't have killed her, and you can be like, okay, but you did push her. It's kind of like leading them into it. Five, reinforce sincerity to ensure that the suspect is receptive. I don't think I put this on here, um, or I didn't say it, but during phase three here, the interrogation, your investigator is supposed to be understanding and patient and lead the interviewer or the interviewee to trust you. Step six, the suspect will become quieter and listen. Move the theme of the discussion toward offering alternatives. If the suspect cries at this point, infer guilt. I would be crying the whole time. <laughs> Seven, what happens if you're crying in phase one? I would be. I would, when they called me down to interview, I'd be like, oh, they're going to get me. 
Step seven, pose the alternative question where you give two choices for what happened, one of them more socially acceptable than the other. The suspect is expected to choose the easier option. So, you know, did you plan this out? Did you mean to go kill him or was it self-defense? You expect the suspect to choose whichever alternative is more socially acceptable, but whichever one they choose, guilt is admitted. There is the third option, which is that they might maintain they did not commit the crime. Uh, But at this point, you're kind of expecting to get an admission of guilt. Step eight, get them to repeat their admission of guilt in front of witnesses. Step nine, document their confession and have them prepare a recorded statement, either audio, visual, or written down. Um, give If they have trouble remembering details, give them multiple choice questions. For example, don't say, how did you get in the house? Say, did you come in the front door, the back door, or the window? Add some minor mistakes to the document that they are signing, which they will then correct. This will show the court that the suspect understood what they were doing. Some of the stuff, I feel like that is kind of a little bit sneaky way to get somebody who actually did commit the crime, right? Making mistakes that they're going to fix, things like that. Um, So John Reed, the one who developed this technique, he was really big on body language and tells like fidgeting. Um, But there have been over 30 years of studies that show there is not a reliable correlation between body language and lying, even though we feel like there is and we hear about, you know, somebody looks to the left, they're lying. If they bite their nails, they're lying. There's no reliable correlation. No study has proven this, but many studies have disproven this. Oh, ah. oh she's too cute. Wow. <laughs> There have been studies that show that on average, police are no better than the average citizen at determining if somebody is lying to them. However, they are much more confident that they can determine somebody is lying. The read technique has a lot of critics. Um, It is very effective at eliciting confessions, but it's also very likely to get false confessions. It's often used... On, or it's also often used on suspects who aren't clearly involved in the crime when a gathering information session would be more useful than a stressful interrogation. Some countries do not even allow their police force to use the read technique, like Germany, because it is so deceptive. <clears throat> um, so remember I told you that there was a case that made him kind of famous where he got Daryl Parker to confess to his wife's murder? The next day, Daryl Parker recanted. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Years later, he was exonerated when another man was found to be guilty of the murder. So the case that got his interviewing technique attention was a case that got a false confession anyway. I also, I read this article um, by a journalist named Douglas Starr talking about the read technique. He signed up for the class. You can sign up for the class and be trained in the read technique. It cost him $550. And this was in, I think, 2013. The instructor of the class was the vice president of the company. And the instructor said, the hallmark of lying is anxiety. And interviewing, therefore, involves watching for signs of anxiety and occasionally causing it. And this is when I decided that there's no doubt in my mind I would be convicted of something I didn't do. If all they think you need to look for is anxiety in the person you're interviewing, and that means that they're lying. I think most reasonable people are going to have some anxiety when being interviewed by the police. Well, because you're 
you're in a room with nothing to do. You're going at it for, I mean, their average, like, confession is 16 hours. Like, you're getting sleep deprived. You're also, like, because it's a stressful environment, so your adrenaline will kick in. But, like, if anyone's had, like, a crash after adrenaline, like, it's exhausting. Yeah. Like, and and you're... He talked about how the instructor kept talking about how important body language is and nonverbal cues. And he said by the end of it, everybody taking the class was being very, very careful with their body language. Um, But it's just, they rely so heavily on that. And there is no evidence to show that that's actually useful. But anyway, I'm not done with this. Um, So there's a man named Saul Kassin. Kassin or Kassin? I'm going to say Kassin. He is a false confession expert. He is a postdoctoral fellow in psychology. He works with Williams College in Massachusetts and John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. He's widely regarded as the leading expert on false confessions. He started researching psychological factors that influence jury decisions, and he discovered at this time that when a confession was involved, every juror would vote guilty, regardless of any other DNA DNA evidence. Any Every juror would vote guilty, regardless of any other evidence. They would take a confession over DNA evidence, over alibis, over witness statements. A confession sealed the deal for them. He bought the Reed Technique manual and said, quote, My first impression was, my God, this reads like a bad psychology textbook. It was filled with assertions and no empirical proof. End quote. He believes that this technique is inherently coercive. He created an experiment in the mid-1990s to explore how easy it is to induce false confessions. So the way the experiment worked is he would have two students, like two college students, sitting at a table. One student is reading a list of letters, and the other student has to type them on a computer. Now, the student who's reading the letters, they're in on the experiment. So they're, like, in cahoots with the researchers. The student typing would be told not to hit the alt key on the keyboard, or it would cause the computer to crash. They had the computer programmed to crash about 60 seconds after the experiment would start. So the computer would crash, the experimenter would burst in and angrily ask the participant if they had hit the alt key. The first experiment that they did, they had 75 participants, about a quarter of them immediately admitted to hitting the key because they were intimidated by the accuser. The second time they did the experiment, they added false incrimination. They had the student who was like in league with them say, I saw him hit the key. This doubled the rate of confession. Um, they did another version where the experimenter told the subjects that their keystrokes had been recorded and they would be able to verify if they hit the key or not. This tripled the rate of confession. Um, so adding any little we know you did it would cause more and more people to confess to something that they didn't do. Afterwards, they would inform the students that it had been an experiment and some of them actually said, you're just trying to make me feel better. So after being told that they did it, they just believed that they did it. Uh, Now, these experiments have been criticized, and I will say that I agree with this. They're not particularly realistic as far as being similar enough to an interrogation. Um, They said that some of the subjects could have accidentally hit the wrong key. There are also no real consequences, no jail time. There's no trial. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like people... I mean, if I was doing the experiment, I would probably be like, my bad. 
like it was an accident. Yeah. Um, oh my bad. I must have hit it. Yeah. But, like, what's the worst <laughs> that could happen? But if someone accused me of murder, there is like I would not just I would be much more. You wouldn't just come out with you're right. I probably right. I'd be I there I'd I'd be like no. They're like no. Because I also feel like technique for sixteen hours. Well, then I feel like she is. It's plausible that you accidentally hit an extra key or something. Yeah, but I feel like murder. You know, if you murdered somebody or not, usually, (laughs) usually, usually, the main criticism of this is that it's just not realistic enough. It's not really comparable to. It's hard to accidentally kill somebody murder somebody yeah um there have been other people and not be like immediately aware of it yeah there have been other people since who have created experiments or replicated experiments that are closer to real world situations and they've all had very similar results to the number of people who will admit to something that they didn't do um a man named richard leo who is a law professor at the university of san francisco underwent the reed technique training And then in the mid-90s, he sat in on nearly 200 police interrogations over the course of nine months. He said that most of the officers he observed used the read technique, but most of them, most of those who used it, used it incorrectly. They would skip those first two phases, the fact-gathering phase and the behavior analysis phase, and jump immediately into the interrogation. Greg McCrary, a retired FBI agent, said that the read technique creates a tendency to see lies where they may not exist while giving the investigator confidence that they have the right person. And this is a lot because of um, the body language thing. So as people are fidgeting or doing whatever body language that that particular investigator interprets to mean they're lying, the investigator becomes increasingly confident that they've got the right person. So they are then interrogating them more aggressively which then causes the subject to be more stressed and do whatever fidgeting or whatever. And it's just a cycle. Um, So while I was researching this, I found myself wondering why defense attorneys don't bring in false confession experts as expert testimony, expert witness testimony during trials when they have, when they're defending somebody who says that they were coerced. And it turns out they're often not allowed to testify in Pennsylvania. If you are um, on trial, your attorneys cannot bring in, false confession experts because in june of 2014 our supreme court ruled against allowing expert false confession testimony um two justices dissented from this decision justices thomas sailor and deborah mccloskey they said that it should be up to individual judges i agree with that i think that that's a weird thing for the state supreme court to be like no courts can use this particular testimony it it seems like a weird weirdly specific to yes. keep out of court like is there any other like thing that they're the like you're, you're not allowed to do that in court i'm not sure that's a good question but, but isn't that like i can't think of anything specifically it feels like an overreach to me like yeah. judges individually i agree with the judges who dissented your individual trial judges should be able to decide if they're gonna allow yeah. that money or not they should um, look at the specifics of the case and then be like I don't think it's appropriate or I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. The reason that they, and there are other states who've done the same thing. Georgia Supreme Court also does not allow uh, expert testimony. Oh, I'm going to talk about that down here. But so it's not like a weirdly local PA thing. It's a thing throughout a lot of the country. 
So the current president of John E. Reed and Associates says that critics misrepresent the company. He points out that the third phase of the technique, the interrogation, is only supposed to begin if a suspect appears to be lying during the behavioral analysis. So if there are police who are skipping the first two phases and going into phase three, that's not a problem with the technique. That's a problem with the person doing the interrogation, that they're not following the steps. Um, he says also, because one of the issues that people have with the re-technique is that it's very deceptive. And he says that if a suspect trusts the investigator more than they should, that's their problem. Um, and judges tend to agree with this. The Supreme Court ruled in 1969 that police can lie to suspects during interrogations. That was a Supreme Court decision. So it's kind of like if you're being interviewed and you're going to trust the people interviewing you, that's your fault. You should know better kind of thing. He does not believe that studies can accurately replicate the stresses of an actual interrogation, which we had talked about. And he can he claims that if false confessions happen, it's because of police not following their training, not because of the re-technique. However, interestingly, one of the most famous cases of a false confession um, affected a suspect who was interviewed by re-technique trainers at the Reed headquarters. So I'm going to tell you guys about three different cases of false confessions, two pretty well known, and then I'll tell you about the one that actually... Um, had me looking into this. So in 1992, 19-year-old Juan Rivera was brought in for questioning about the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl. During the time that the crime was being committed, phone records of a call from his house to his mom's house in Puerto Rico put him at home, as well as the electronic ankle monitor he was wearing. He was currently awaiting trial for a nonviolent theft of a car stereo. So the electronic records that tracked his ankle monitor put him at home. He had a history of mental illness. He was interrogated for four days, during which he was allowed to sleep for four hours. Twice during this period, he was brought to the Reed headquarters and was interrogated by a Reed trainer. He eventually confessed after four days. He was sentenced to life. In 2005, DNA evidence showed another man's semen in the victim, and Rivera was given a new trial. He wasn't, like, exonerated. They just did the trial again. The prosecutor's line, this trial, they had a couple theories, but I wrote this one down because it made me so angry, was that the victim, the 11-year-old victim, must have been sexually active and had another man's semen in her when Rivera attacked her. He was found guilty again, mostly because of his confession the first time. In January 2012, he won his appeal and was released. He sued the city, and he sued Reed and Associates, and was awarded $20 million between the two of them. I think, I mean, that one's insane anyway, but I also think it's particularly interesting because the president of Reed and Associates was like, if you get false confessions, it's because they're not following their training. But it was a little Reed trainer who inter interrogated this guy, among others. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I also feel like if I was the parent of the 11-year-old, I would object yeah. to them painting my child as... Yeah. A sexually, sexually active, active. Just if, but if but they were doing, possibly be but, like, maybe we got the wrong guy. Let's look back into it again. But here, the other thing is like, 
I'm assuming the semen that was in the 11 year old was an adult. Yes. Did he get. That's evidence that he had sex with a minor. Yeah, that should also be a thing. Um, if they were doing the, like, protocol correctly, the first step is, like, just looking at facts. He had a mm-hmm. phone call that linked him at home. He also had an ankle yep. monitor. Like, the interrogation s- should have stopped there. Yeah. I, yeah, the ankle monitor, to me, because a phone call, you could, that could be yeah, anybody in the house making the phone call. Yeah. But the ankle monitor... Uh, yeah, it would be like okay. That's if I was on the jury, I'd be like, okay, clearly wrong. Can't be him. Yeah, yeah. should even be sweetheart. Timestamps of where he was at the ankle uh, monitor. Right. Once they had that uh, showing him at home, he, uh, like how would how do they think he would have gotten around that? Yeah, that's just. Amazing. Did they talk about that? <laughs> no, I, I think, and th- this is my interpretation. I feel like it was a case where he was acting guilty, or they read into his behavior as guilty behavior and became convinced it had to be him. And just well, kind of I also wonder that it wasn't. Because you, you said that his mom was in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, and Probably earlier you said there. that people of color confess. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that had anything to do with it. Or maybe there was a language barrier, or mm-hmm. did you say he. Mental illness. Yeah. Well, yep. that's really kind of vague. It could be guy. anything as far as mental illness, but like, um, my, my do we attacking? Do we have heart. a special guest that we didn't introduce to everybody? We sure do. We're just letting them wonder about her. <laughs> she, what, her? She's just like grunting. Yeah, no, she was. She yeah, she was here. We were recording when she. No, I, in. I remember she wasn't making noise though. She wants to no. say something too. <laughs> she's just grunting. Oh. I don't know. Can you, ma'am, you're turning the volume down. <laughs> she she doesn't like that in confession either. Well, she's turning now, the volume of my now. mic down. So, ma'am, you want to say hi? Say hi. <laughs> Do you want to say hi like a big girl? There you go. Can you say hi? Hi. Okay. Um, so now the case that I had been researching that I decided wasn't enough for oh, a whole case. Sorry, I have another thing. Sorry, yeah. I have another thought. We'll go for it. So with the West Memphis three, it was a bunch of eight year olds, I believe, who were filmed, mm-hmm. attacked, and murdered. Um, and I f- so I feel like with child cases, there's an eagerness to get it solved. Yeah. And so I feel like. An eleven-year-old who was raped and murdered, they want to get that person off the streets, yeah. and they found an easy victim. Yeah, and then their confirmation bias is just going to have them. I'm I'm sure they thought they had the right guy. They were willing to ignore the evidence that pointed against him, and they were like, "It's him. I'm going to make sure he confesses, so we can put him away for it." But my my thing is, if you're willing to ignore the evidence that proves that they're innocent. I don't know how, like, how conscious could you be? Like, if there's some cases where I'm like, okay, maybe they truly believed that they had the right guy. But then there's other cases where I'm like, you just ignored evidence. There's no way that you could say, oh, I thought it was him. 
-hmm. You're ignoring evidence. You can't honestly believe that he was the one who did it if you're willing to ignore the evidence. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Um, so the episode that I was looking into was a Labor Day episode. Mm -hmm. Um, John Lavelle Lynn was a tow truck tow truck operator who owned an auto salvage shop in Glynn County, Georgia. On September 4th, 2000, he received a call from a man requesting a tow. He grabbed some money that he was going to use to pay some bills that day, and he and his mechanic, Robert Arthur Van Allen, headed to the location. When they got there, they were ambushed, shot to death, and his money was stolen. After being interrogated using the Reed technique, John's nephew, Buddy Woodall, confessed to helping his brother-in-law, David Wimberly, carry out the murders. He was convicted and sentenced to two life sentences. The case against David Wimberly was dropped. Um, so the issues are that the interrogation went on for 10 hours before Buddy Woodall even placed himself at the crime scene. His confession was the main deciding factor for the jury, even though the details of his confession did not align with evidence. An expert on the psychology of false confessions was not allowed to testify because Georgia's Supreme Court had previously ruled that since there is not an official science of false confessions, there can't be experts on it. Um, his Woodall's wife is a defense attorney. He, his wife, and his actual attorney maintained that his confession was coerced. He appealed to the Supreme Court in 2014, but his appeal was denied, so he's still in jail. So this was the case that, as I researched it, I kind of got into false confessions and stuff. The third one, I'm sure you've heard of, the Central Park Five. Anybody? <laughs> yeah. So in 1918, that's not true. That wasn't true. It, on April 19th of 1989, 28-year-old Trisha Maley, Maley was attacked and raped while jogging in Central Park. Five teenagers, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, and Corey Wise, were convicted of the attack, despite the DNA evidence of the scene not matching a single one of them. They were interrogated between 14 and 30 hours no. each. Some of the tactics used involved convincing them that they would be allowed to go home if they confessed, to convincing them that their friend was getting beaten up in the next room and they would be next if they didn't confess. Four of the five boys confessed, um, and details from their confessions were wrong. Things like the victim's clothes, details of the crime scene, and, I already said, but I think it's worth repeating, the DNA evidence found didn't match any of these five boys. All convicted. In 2002, serial rapist Matthias Matthias Reyes confessed after his DNA was found to match the DNA at the scene. The conviction of the boys was then vacated. So that's probably, I would say, the most famous example of confessions. West Memphis 3. I, would, really I think famous. there's a lot of well-known ones. Well, they were they, a famous one. They used the confession from one of the boys in the West Memphis 3. Mentally ill. Yeah. Um, and, like, he would... They would... There was parts of, I, I think that there was parts of the confession tape that was missing or like went unrecorded. And then when he was like telling them the confession, they'd be, he'd be like, well, then I, I stabbed him. And they'd be like, did you mean you shot him? And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They coached him. Also, yeah. I almost forgot. I didn't write it down, but, um, 
a couple years ago, all of America was watching Making a Murderer on Netflix. Um, and we actually got to see... Now, I watched season one. Don't remember a whole lot of details. And I forgot. I was going to go look it up and write it in here. So I'm not going to go deep into this one. But we did see oh. interview techniques being used on a young man who he suffered from some mental illness or he was like developmentally delayed. And it was very easy to see how they were leading the questions in the interview and making him think, if you say this, you'll be allowed to go home. Oh, that's the other thing. They they pro- they like promised the one West Memphis guy that like you, we just need you to confess and then you then we'll all be done. Yeah, and they're allowed they're allowed to lie in interview. Um, yeah, and that was one of the one guy's thing was like if you believe them, that's your problem. No, no. Um, I think after being interviewed for hours and hours on end, you might. Is she having fruit sticks? A little jealous. Um, mm-hmm. So there are alternative interview models. The retechnique is the most widely used. It's not the only one out there. Um, a more recently developed interview model is called the PEACE model, which stands for preparation and planning, engage and explain, account, closure, and evaluate. This was developed in England. and is currently the main model being used by the Canada Royal Mountain Police. They took it on as like their official um, interviewing model. So we're not stuck with the retechnique. We don't have to keep using it despite... The fact that it seems like that's all we use. That's that's what I got. That's pretty much all I got for you guys. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Because I'm sleepy and I'm ready for bed. Um, it it really made me think back to some of the cases that we've done and people confessing and then saying they didn't do it, and it just makes me wonder. Yeah, in some of the numbers, like when this, um, three hundred eleven people were exonerated due to post-conviction DNA testing, and a quarter of them had confessed. This freaks me out a little bit. I feel um, like, I mean, this is why when I got, like, jury duty, like, noticed and then got turned down before I was able to go, I was, like, so excited, because I'd be like, oh my god, I'd be such a smart juror. Like, because, yeah, if someone confessed, but, like, if you have DNA arguing against it like that's i think juries forget that you have to do it without any sense of reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. even if there's like a little bit of doubt like it baffles me that people just put a confession over dna yeah i I feel like dna is so hard to refute or or things like ankle monitor records yeah I would love it's... to know how they tried to explain that away in the trial. I mean, and apparently they did. I shouldn't even say try to. They did it well enough that the jury was like, okay. Or they just overcasted that the that he confessed. Yeah, really driving that home. I think that's yeah. got to be the strategy. And like, they can't, and then uh, they can't I don't know. The, why, nobody would confess to a murder if they didn't commit murder. That's like, and that's, I feel like we mostly feel that way. Why would you? And it happens. but if you really like i mean obviously like tv doesn't show like the amount of like hours and like grilling that interrogation Mm -hmm. is but like yeah you're in a small room getting asked the same questions constantly yeah it's a lot of stress with like probably limited food yeah limited Limited drinks bathroom breaks Mm. 
That's why it's so important to always get a lawyer. Yeah. The whole getting a lawyer makes you look guilty is not true in real life. No one knows the law like a lawyer. Also, if it does make you look guilty, fuck off. They'll help you out. Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, that's the takeaway from today. Always get a lawyer. Before you talk to anybody. Don't get a lawyer after you've confessed to something you didn't do. Do you guys think that you would be coerced into confessing something you didn't do? No. I I think, um... I think I'd call a lawyer quickly. Yeah, I think that I I would get a lawyer right away. Um, That's true. I don't think I would allow myself to be interviewed alone because of my fear that I would confess something I didn't do. But also, I feel like Bailey and I are so stubborn that we would just sit there and be like, no, we didn't, no, no, we didn't. And Lacey, you would feel so guilty for just being like, having to be there. You would say, I'm sorry. I used to say it jokingly, but now I really feel like they would be able to get me. Yeah. So I'll lawyer up. You need more? No. No? No. I have M&M's. Oh, she looks mad. Well, that's because she's not with me right now, and I would Mm. share with her. Yeah. Tell your mommy to come visit more. Do you want to say hi? Hey. Hi. All right. Well, that was fun. Yeah. I'm going to go take my own nap. That's not how the episodes end. I was about to say that was sinister, and it really wasn't. That was informative. And we were sarcastic. It's sort of. Were we? That was interesting. Happy Stay tuned. Stay tuned to our next episode. It's gonna be no, 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 no. <laughs> the next episode is Jean Benet Ramsey. Not the time. Oh, it's a good one too. I though. mean, that that's so gonna be a doozy you. too. Yeah, the next one is, that is what daily diet love past oh, and this. Yeah. One- this, I don't know how much, I feel like Bailey has a lot of information about it, but we're going to need a lot of time to, like, talk, because I already have theories. Yeah. I feel like it might be a two-parter. Yeah, huh? I think it might be. It might be a two-parter. Yeah. Well, Just I'm worried that Dominique Ramsey might be two-parter, too. Um, Like, I was telling, um, cover the baby's eyes, I was telling Lacey <laughs> that specifically this book has um really, like, detailed information on everybody like what they were wearing how like uh how they were found and also pictures and detailed autopsy diagrams oh nice yeah. is that what you wanted me to shield her eyes from a rib cage um well i covered the other part that was actually like an autopsy photo mm-hmm. but like look that's a skull cool. and a body. So much detail. Oh, you know, if you're when you're done reading that book, let me read it. It might be there might be some like highlighted parts, but well, that was sinister, formative, and mellow. Yeah, it was a chill episode. We're gonna start the we're gonna start the year off with like a 
calm presence. Yeah. It's gonna ramp like, up really, really quickly, yeah. though. Yeah. So we're stay moving tuned for a while. Quickly into some serious stuff. So, um, yeah. Also, um, you know, Patreon at Sinister and Sarcastic Nine Four Two. Patreon. Join our so, one Patreon. Yeah. Happy New Year! Happy New Year!